Well, church, uh, this Sunday we celebrate uh, that we have made it. <laughs> okay? Uh, we come here to the book of Malachi, and in coming to the book of Malachi, we have reached the twelfth and final book of the Minor Prophets. And, and, and what we have in the book of Malachi is not just God's final word to the Minor Prophets, but we also have the last word that God spoke to His people in the entire Old Testament. And as, as any parent who has ever left their children at home alone with a babysitter knows, the last words that you communicate before you go out the door are often the very most important ones that you're giving, right? Just before you, you head out of the house and leave your most precious children in the care of someone else, you usually say something like, you know, call me if you need anything, right? There's usually a long list of instructions, but at the end, what you want them to know is, if all else fails, call me. That's the most important instruction. Above everything else, that's what you want them to hear and to remember. And as it is with us, so it is with God. That when He gives us final words, He, he chooses them wisely, and He chooses them carefully, because it is what He wants us to really remember. I mean, and think about it. The Gospels end with Jesus giving us the Great Commission to go out into the world and to make disciples of all of the nations, right? Those are the everlasting marching orders for the church. That is a really important instruction, and he gives it to us last. Or or think about the book of Revelation, which, which ends with a reminder that Christ is coming soon. That's really important for us to remember. God seems to choose his final words carefully and wisely because they're really important. And the end of the Old Testament is no exception. And while the message from the book of Malachi would be a really terrible way to end all of the scriptures, like if this was the final word that we ever heard from God ever in the book of Malachi, that would not be good news. But... As we'll consider later this morning, this message from Malachi really is the perfect way to end the Old Testament scriptures. And it's really an incredibly important message for the people of God in any day and age to revisit and to reconsider from time to time. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them with me to the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. As we consider for one last time the major message of this final minor prophet. Now the ministry of Malachi, it took place uh, about a hundred years after the last two prophets that we've looked at, uh, Haggai and Zechariah. And if you recall, the context of Haggai and Zechariah was that the people of God had just come out of their exile in Babylon. Uh, They had been sent into exile because they had broken God's covenant and they had not listened to God's warning from all of the previous prophets who had come before them uh, to change their ways and and to get back in line with God. And so in an effort to discipline his people and to call them back to himself, God had sent his people into exile for 70 years, kind of like a parent sending their child into timeout in order for them to learn a necessary lesson. And after 70 years, when the time of their chastening was done, 
the people of God began to return to Jerusalem and began to rebuild their lives of faith. It was a hopeful and joyful time as they rebuilt their temple and they rebuilt the city and they rebuilt their homes. They were being reestablished in their life and in their faith. They had returned to the Lord through the ministries of, of Haggai and Zechariah. And for, the, for the first time in a long time, that they were beginning to flourish and to prosper. And for a while, things were going really well. But by the time that Malachi came onto the scene, about a hundred years later, Haggai and Zechariah had long since passed away. And so too had the religious renewals that their ministries had created. The temple and the walls around Jerusalem had been rebuilt. But the spiritual life and the social life of God's people had been reduced to rubble. And part of the reason why that had happened was that both Haggai and Zechariah had promised glorious things for the nation. But there seemed to be no sign of those promises coming true. And so the people were becoming disillusioned and disheartened with the hard realities of their lives. As a result, there was a growing skepticism about God's covenant love for His people. Their religion was degenerating into meaningless ritual. And they had lost all concern for godly living and for the benefit that that might have on their lives. They had gone from the best of times to the worst of times. And it is into this context, into another relapse in the faith of God's people, that God initiates a conversation through the prophet Malachi in order to draw them back to himself once again. And so this entire book is really just a series of dialogues that God is having with his people. And there's a very noticeable pattern that repeats itself over and over again throughout the book of Malachi, where God raises a question or an issue that he sees with uh, his people, a concern that he has with them. And then the people dispute God's charge against them, usually in the form of a question. And then finally, God shows them the reality of his concern and and calls them back to to health and to life and to flourishing that they had previously experienced with him. Six different times in the book of Malachi, this pattern repeats itself. And so this morning, we're going to consider these questions that God raises with his people, because you'll quickly come to realize that these aren't just concerns for the people of Malachi's days. They are questions for our day as well. These are conversations that God would like to have with you from time to time. So let's give them some space to at least begin those conversations with us this morning. The first conversation that we come to is really foundational to all of the others uh, that God has with his people. And so we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning on this first issue. We'll briefly consider the others, but because this first one is, is it, because this first one so profoundly impacts all of the others, uh, we're going to, we, we have to get this one right or else we'll end up getting all of the other ones wrong. And the first question is found in Malachi chapter one, beginning in verse two, where the Lord said to his people, I have loved you. I've loved you. But in response to the Lord's profession of his affection for his people, the people responded back, how have you loved us? Here, God gives a declaration of his love for his people, but the people couldn't hear it, didn't feel it, 
had a hard time receiving it or, or believing it. And if you think about their lives for a moment, in a way, it, it really makes sense as to why. I mean, they had received great promises from God. Just last week, we considered God's promises through Zechariah to purpose good to them, to remove their enemies from the land, to bring glory and safety to their city, to cleanse them from their sin and from their uncleanness. God had given really incredible promises for good to his people. But they weren't experiencing the goodness of God and the fulfillment of those promises in the way that they thought they would. Times were still tough. People were still getting sick and dying. Work was still difficult. Enemies were still present and were seeming to flourish at their expense. Life appeared to be going on just as difficultly and as hardly as it always had. What they were experiencing in their daily lives wasn't living up to their expectations for the promises that God had given to them. And I wonder if you can ever relate to that. Have you ever struggled to feel God's love for you? Have you ever considered the promises of God's love for you and compared those promises to the realities of your life, the challenges and the disappointments of your life and been left confused and disappointed? Has it left you feeling disillusioned with God rather than devoted to Him? Does it ever leave you wondering, how has God loved me? Because it sure doesn't feel like He does. I think everyone feels this way at certain points in their lives. My old bishop, Terrell Glenn, used to have a saying that personal pain robs perspective. When we're facing challenges in life that are painful or unsettling or discouraging, it can cause us to lose all perspective, the discomfort and pain and suffering that we experience as we go through trials blinds us to anything outside of our own personal experience in those moments. The world gets very small in those moments. It feels like it's closing in on us and it becomes incredibly difficult to be able to see beyond our own circumstances. It becomes very difficult in the pain and the suffering of our lives to experience and to remember God's love for us. Personal pain robs perspective. This is what God's people were feeling during this time of Micah. It's what many people continue to feel today. Because personal pain robs perspective. But the second part of Bishop Glenn's saying was this, that personal pain robs perspective, but worship restores it. If our trials rob a true perspective, then our worship restores a right perspective. If our pain and suffering make our world small and inwardly focused, it is our worship of God that makes our world big again. And that rightly orients us outward, beyond ourselves, towards the Lord and His good love for us. Personal pain robs respect, perspective, but worship restores it. And this is what God encourages for His people in response to their questioning of His love for them. 
In the second half of of verse 2 and following, the Lord points his people back to the story of Jacob and Esau and how he chose them. How from the very beginning he had set his favor upon them. Not because of anything good that they had done, but simply because he loved them. And God reminds them how he has sustained them and protected them. And throughout all of of their history, he has defended them from their enemies. And then in verse 5, God says that your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. God's point to them was this. That when they remembered what he had done for them. When they looked beyond the difficulties of their current circumstances and considered the bigger picture of their lives. When they remembered and recognized all of the ways that God had been good to them and had been faithful to them and had been merciful to them and had protected them and had sustained them. When they remembered all of the ways that God had been good to them and loved them and they worshiped the Lord for his goodness and his kindness to them. Then, then their perspective would be restored. When their own eyes saw it, they would proclaim, great is the Lord. They would see his love and they would respond in praise. This reminder from the Lord has profound implications for our own lives when we are struggling to feel his love as well. Like with the Jews, so with the church. We are often called to remember. We heard it in our New Testament reading today from Ephesians, but where Paul, seeking to encourage the church, calls them to remembrance. He says, remember that you were previously separated from Christ and strangers to God's promise and were living without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. It's a call to remember all that God had done for them in Christ. Psalm 103 is an incredible resource for this. It begins by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. The psalmist David here is speaking to himself, to his own heart, to his own soul. And he's telling telling himself to worship by remembering all of the good things that God had done for him. And then he goes on to list so many examples of of the benefits of God, of the ways that God has loved him. David says he, he forgives all of our sins. He heals all of our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. He works justice for the oppressed. He's made his ways known. On and on and on and on he goes. David is instructing his soul to give praise to God. And the way that he does so is by remembering the great works of God and all that God has done for him. This is a really good model for us. If you're ever struggling to feel the love of God, if personal pain is robbing your perspective, create time and space to reflect on the countless ways that God has loved you. Like the kids are doing this morning, get a journal out. Right at the top, how has God loved me? Let me count the ways and and then write them. A poem or a psalm or if you don't have the the wherewithal to do that, just make a list of all of the ways that God has loved you. Because he has. We just need to remember. 
This is the first issue that God addresses with his people in the book of Malachi. And it, it really has to be the first issue that God addresses with his people. Because if our understanding of God's love for us is off, then everything else is going to be off also. And this is what we see in the rest of the book. We don't have time to even begin to dive into all of these different issues that God raises with his people in Malachi. But, but as a very brief summary, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, he challenges the people in the way that they were bringing blind and lame animals uh, to sacrifice on his altar. He was challenging them on, on the quality and the sincerity of their worship. In chapters 1 or, or 2, verses 1 through 9, he challenged them on the ways that they were distorting his word. And turning aside from his ways. And and how they were seeking knowledge and wisdom from sources other than him. In chapter 2 verses 10 through 16. He challenged them in regards to their unfaithfulness to one another. Within the community of of the church. Or or of of the people of God. And within their marriages. In chapter 2 verse 17. He challenged them in the way that they were calling that which is evil good. And in the way that they were questioning God's justice. In chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, he challenged them in the way that they were robbing from God by withholding a portion of their tithes and their offerings. And then finally, in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, he challenged them in the way that they had spoken against him by claiming that it was, it was vain to, and pointless to serve God and that there was no profit to following his ways. That's basically the book of Malachi. And it would be a very fruitful exercise for you to take some time each day over the next week or so and sit with this book and have this conversation with God in prayer about the questions that he raises for his people in this book. Are you giving your best to the Lord? Or are you giving the Lord your leftovers? That which costs you nothing. What you would want to get rid of anyway. What do your sacrifices and the offerings that you make say about your relationship with the Lord? Are you being faithful to the word of the Lord? Or are there parts of his word that you are changing, ignoring, disregarding when you consider it for yourselves or when you share it with others? Because it either makes you uncomfortable or you don't understand it or you disagree with it. Are you being faithful within the covenant community of God? And within the covenant of your marriage, if you're married, are there ways in which you're failing to love your brothers and sisters in the church as yourself? Are there ways you're failing to love your spouse as Christ loved the church? Are you being nourished and fed and shaped and formed in the community of faith? Or are you allowing the world to do that in your life? Are there ways in which you call that which is evil good? Have you distorted or disregarded God's judgment on things and created your own judgment on them? Do you give approval to those who practice what God calls evil? Are you giving of your resources to the work of God in this world in a way that is generous and sacrificial? Do you give as one who is not under the compulsion of the law, but who's under the joy of grace? Are there ways that you have questioned God, even if only in your heart, as to what's the point of all of this? What good does it do to follow God's ways? What, what real benefit is there that's found in holy living? 
These are deeply searching and convicting questions. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are ways in which we all fall short of every one of them. And when we do, that the reason why we do is because we're off back on issue number one. That we're not understanding how God has loved us. Because the reality is that when we get that issue wrong, all of the others are off. But if we get that issue right, then all of the others fall into place. I mean, think about it. When we really know how much we've been loved by the Lord, we will give Him the very best of what we have to offer. All of ourselves with joy and thanksgiving for the ability to do so. That's what the love of God does to us. When we really know how much we've been loved by the Lord, we don't want to miss or misinterpret a single word that He has to say to us. We want to hear exactly what He has to say. When we really know how much we've been loved by the Lord, we want to share that love with with our neighbors inside and outside of the church. We want to love our spouses with that same kind of love. On and on and on it goes with every single one of the issues that God raises with His people. They are all rooted and sourced in that first and primary issue of understanding God's love for them. And the reason that we know that this is true, the reason that we know that this is the case, that it's all sourced in in, in knowing God's love for them, is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We heard it in our gospel reading this morning from John chapter 15, where Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. See, Jesus knew the love of his Father. And as a result of that love, he lived a perfect life. He always gave the very best that he had to his Father. He only ever said exactly what the Father said. He was perfectly faithful to God in every single way. He loved his neighbor even better than he loved himself. He gave everything, literally everything away, his very life as a pure and perfect sacrifice to his father. He never questioned the benefit of living according to God's ways, never questioned God's justice. Jesus lived the perfect life because he perfectly knew God's perfect love for him. It's all sourced in that. And this is why Malachi is actually the perfect ending to the Old Testament scriptures. Because ultimately what the people of God are experiencing in Malachi's day, this spiritual malaise and and apathy of faith, it isn't a unique situation in any way. It's really just another example of the ever-repeating cycle of God's people. Where he calls his people out of a difficult situation and for a brief time they respond, but all too quickly they fall away again. We saw it with Noah after the flood. We see it with the Jews in the wilderness after the exodus. We see it all over the book of Judges as they go back and forth and back and forth. We see it throughout the stories of the kings as some kings were good and some kings were bad. We've seen it here in the stories of the prophets. And we experience it in our own lives as well. Waxing and waning. Times of devotion and times of distraction. 
times of faithfulness and times of faithlessness. And the reason this is the case is because as humans living in a fallen and broken world, we simply aren't able to constantly and fully experience and respond to the love of God in the way that we need for life and flourishing. We need help in order to be able to do that. Which is exactly why Malachi is the perfect way to end the Old Testament scriptures. Because at the end of the book of Malachi, in the first part of chapter 3, and in all of chapter 4, God says, Behold, look, watch, for I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. He will come like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap, as a refiner and a purifier. He's going to come and do work in the hearts and the minds and the lives of God's people. And then the offerings of God's people will be pleasing to the Lord once again. We couldn't do it ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. And so God was going to come and do it for us. And of course, this is speaking of Jesus who came into the world to show us And to give us the love of God. He is the love of God come down. And by His love, for those of us who have experienced His love, we've been made new. New hearts. New minds. New lives. New motivations. We've been made new. And we are being transformed. Changed. From one degree of glory to another. Until that day when Jesus returns, at which time we will no longer see only in part and know only in part. But then we will see clearly and know fully the love of God and be changed perfectly by it. This is God's response to our spiritual apathy. This is God's response to the waxing and to the waning that we experience in our relationship with Him. This is how God responds when we can't see and we don't understand how God is loving us. He sends Christ. He sends love down, wrapped in flesh. And His love lived for us. And His love died for us. And His love rose again from the dead for us so that we might know that God's love conquers all. So how has God loved us? He's loved us in Christ. Let us count and consider the ways. He chose us in Him from before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. He has made for us and given to us this very good and incredibly beautiful world for us to live in and to steward over. He created us, each one of us perfectly unique and individual, lovingly knitting us together in our mother's wombs. He gave us life and breath and second by second. For all of the seconds of our lives, He sustains us in those. He pursued us when we strayed and wandered into danger. 
like a shepherd going after a lost sheep. He protects us from the enemy who prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. He shelters us from the storms of the world, calming those storms with His presence in our lives. He forgives us when we make mistakes. He washes us clean when we get soiled. He takes away our shame when we've been foolish. He paid our penalty when we couldn't afford it. He died our death when we couldn't endure it. And He gave us life when we could never find it on our own. How has God loved us? Let us count the ways. Let us count the ways. In order that we might return to Him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. For God's glory and for our good. Amen.